0: You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit CanbyFoursquare.com to learn more. Hey, Renee. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Welcome to church. Uh, Very thankful that you guys are with us this morning. You're at New Life Foursquare Church. We exist To make disciples who make disciples. That means we want to fall more in love with Jesus with every aspect of our lives. We also want to equip and teach other people how to do the same. That gets expressed locally through the proclamation of the gospel every week and many other things that we do here, but also gets expressed internationally. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Arlene Tatum talk about the work that she's doing, uh, doing evangelism crusades and bringing the message of repentance and reconciliation uh, to the countries of Rwanda, excuse me, Uganda and Kenya. Um, She also has um, branches in Rwanda as well. Um, She is going there this fall for something like the 22nd time. Uh, She ministers to people in prisons and prison camps throughout the Great Lakes region in Africa. And you beautiful, generous people gave over $5,000 to her just last weekend alone. So thank you so much for that. Uh, That's beautiful. Um, So continue. I encourage you to continue to pray for and support Arlene as she... Um, heads out here this summer. Uh, You'll see her back up here one more time, giving you some more details about the trip, but we're excited and privileged to be able to partner with her in the work that God is doing in that area. All right, we are continuing our little series in the book of Philippians entitled Impact. Um, I had last weekend, I get to preach this weekend, Pastor Ron sends his love and regards as well. You'll see him next week. Um, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. So if you have a Bible, you are welcome to open it up there. As always, the sermon in a nutshell. Here's the big idea for us today. You see it right there on your sermon note sheet as well. Is that gospel-centered living places Jesus at the center of the story. Gospel-centered living places Jesus at the center of the story. Let's... uh, Turn to Philippians chapter 3 as we're on our way there. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a good king. Help us in our time together right now to hear from your word in a way that changes us. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to hear, understand, and change. We love you, God. Help us to be a people who are humble and centered in you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, let's pick it up. Chapter three, verse one. Paul writes to a church that he planted in a city called Philippi, and he says, "Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you the same things is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh." For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Okay, so Paul took a turn in there somewhere. I'll try to point that out to you. Uh, Let's pick it up back there in verse 1. Paul starts this section by repeating a key theme in this letter, and that is joy in the Lord. Paul wants us to be a people who experience joy in Christ. I don't know if you guys remember one of the things that Ron mentioned earlier in introducing this series is that as he was studying Philippians, he felt God tell him that the key themes for him in 2017 out of the book of Philippians are exalt Jesus, love people, and have fun doing it. It's that piece right there that Paul is getting at. Paul isn't so concerned with circumstances. Of course, happiness goes up and down, but joy can remain constant. Why? Because it's in Jesus. And who doesn't change? Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves you today. He'll love you tomorrow. You can have great joy in that. In fact, Paul is so serious about this, he actually takes a moment to apologize for having to repeat himself to the Philippians. And then here in verse 2, you'll notice Paul takes a bit of a right-hand turn. The tone is going to shift. All of a sudden, he says, beware of the dogs. Okay, Um, what's he doing here? All right, fun fact. Uh, you know that some people have signs or doormats that say, beware of the dog, right? They'll put them up on their fence or in the front door of their house, and um, they'll say this, like, beware the dog, <laughs> all right? My cat, I need, I don't have a dog, I have a cat, and I need a sign that says, passive aggressive, temperamental, and, and violent animal lives here. That's, that's my cat. It's a terrible, terrible pet. Um, <laughs> That picture on the right, though, um, we, this, isn't just a nor- this isn't just a modern thing. Um, the ancient world had its own version of beware of the dog. This is um, the entry to a marble entryway in a villa in Pompeii, which is near Philippi. And it's a picture of a dog on a chain. And underneath it are the words cave canem, which is a Latin phrase that means beware of the dog. Now, So then, as now, people would keep dogs inside their house to protect them from those who would seek to enter the house illegally and harm the family. And Paul uses this same phrase, beware of the dog, not to talk about the, the, the defense inside the house to keep threats out but rather the threat outside of the house that's trying to get into the church. Well, what's the threat? Paul's obviously not talking about actual dogs. What he says there is the text gives us a clue as to what this kind of danger or threat is. It's a false teaching. These dogs are evildoers who mutilate the flesh, and that's a phrase that refers back to the Jewish practice of circumcision. Now, Paul's Jewish. Paul's circumcised. Why is he getting on about this? See, Paul would constantly deal with this faction of people that would follow him around. See, he would go to a place, he would go to the regions in Galatia, he'd go to Philippi, he'd go to Thessalonica, he'd go to Colossae. He'd go to all these places and he'd preach the same thing. He says, your salvation is by faith in the man Jesus Christ, who was crucified for your sins and resurrected by the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And through faith in him, you become righteous. You become in right standing with God. And it's not by anything that you do. And this was a radical gospel. This was radical good news. And there was a whole bunch of people who followed Paul around and came in behind his churches, and they would say things like, well, you know, Paul kind of has a point, but really, because you're serving the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, you're going to need to become Jewish. You're going to need to follow the dietary restrictions. You're going to keep Sabbath. you need to get circumcised. You're going to need to keep all 613 Old Testament laws in order for you to be a good Christian, accepted and acceptable in the sight of God. And Paul was violently, vehemently against this group of people called the Judaizers. If you read the book of Galatians, you can see how angry he is that that church had fallen prey to this false teaching that said, well, okay, we might be saved by grace, but in order to stay in God's good standing, we need to continue to work for it and obey and make sure that we are acceptable to God by some other means than the grace of Christ. So these Judaizers had gotten into churches and regions that Paul had planted And now Paul writes back and he writes these just um, frustrated and upset that, especially in Galatia, his congregation was abandoning the way of faith. So here's what he does here. He's a good pastor, he knows the pattern. He knows as soon as, um, pretty soon, these folks will show up to Philippi as well. And so he gives them this pastoral warning look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I want you to resist this false teaching, and here's how I want you to do it. In contrast to the Judaizers, Paul states that we are those who do what? Who worship by the Spirit of God. That is, in contrast to the letter of the law. We glory in Christ Jesus rather than in our own accomplishments or capacity to do what's right and we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, when I stand before God, I know that there is nothing good that I bring, only God's, God's grace and his righteousness that's given to me. So I have no confidence in what I can do, but I have total confidence in what Jesus does. So Paul lays out the stark contrast between the false gospel and the true gospel. Okay, so here's the takeaway. We don't deal with a whole bunch of people walking around pushing circumcision on our churches. Uh, That's not the issue that's on the table today, and thank God. But the temptation to always add something to the gospel is present. The temptation to think that my sin or my circumstance or my situation needs something else besides the grace of Christ demonstrated for me on the cross. And so the moment we step outside of a trust in God, For our salvation, where our hope is rooted only in him, then we're suspect to the same kind of thing that Paul was dealing with way back in Philippi. That is, we'll fall prey to a false teaching that says, actually, in addition to trusting Jesus, you need to be really good. And the good is always by the standard of the person who says it, right? You need to be really good. You need to stop doing those things in order for God to like you, in order for God to accept you. And friends, this is not the gospel. The gospel, and this is why I love this church, is because we are insistent that we will always keep the main thing the main thing, and that's Jesus, and the work of Jesus, and the person of Jesus, front and center. Our hope is not in our ingenuity. Our hope is not in our capacity to do that which is right. I have no confidence in this thing that you see up here to make good choices. I need Jesus. I was saved by grace. I continue to grow by grace, and I will, in the final judgment, Stand before God by grace alone. And it is that grace that empowers me and empowers us as a congregation to do good things. Don't get me wrong. It's not as though your works don't matter, but they are not the root of why God loves and accepts you. They're merely the fruit of what Jesus has done in your life, and it's the natural outgrowth from that that we do. So we will always keep the main thing the main thing, which is that Jesus is at the center. Jesus is our beginning. He is our sustainer, and he will be with us at the end. And when we stand before God in the final day of judgment, what will we have? We will not have any moment to talk about all the things that people did against us, and that's the reason why we sinned. Literally, this morning, my children downstairs, screaming, somebody comes upstairs, he hit me, he hit me first. Everybody wants to make an excuse for why they behave the way we do, and when we stand before God, we don't get those excuses. What can we do? We can only appeal to and plead the precious blood of Jesus Christ, shed on our behalf, broken for us, and in that transaction, as we put trust in him, God gives back to us salvation and righteousness, which we'll hold as we trust in Him and by no other means. By no other means. So let us not fall prey to adding anything to the purity of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here's the second point Paul says, being awesome is awesome, but it's not as awesome as Jesus. That's the second thing in your notes there. What's interesting is that now Paul will say, I have no confidence in the flesh. And then he'll talk about all the reasons why he could if he wanted to. Um, He actually can pass the test of being a really good guy. He's going to lay out a list of reasons why in verses four and following. It's basically a resume of his awesomeness. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Watch this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here Paul is engaging in this kind of rhetorical dogfight. He know he wants his audience to know that he actually could stand up in court and say, look, I've lived my life in such a way that makes me acceptable to God. I mean, look at all the boxes he can check. Check it out. Circumcision. Yep, check. I'm an Israelite. Check. From the tribe of Benjamin. Check. A Hebrew of Hebrews. You got it. As to the law of Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, basically it's like the super mega elite higher, it's those folks way up there. Zealous for the law, so much so that anybody who he thought violated the law, he would go get papers from the magistrate, break into their house, bust their skulls open, and take them off to jail. He persecuted the church. He was so insistent on keeping the law. He said, I kept the law and I'm totally righteous. Check. This is a lifetime. Of accomplishment. You do not get to check all of those boxes because you drifted that direction. This is intentional. This is habitual. This is Paul raising up every day from his earliest moments to say, I will exceed all of my peers. When people look at me and they ask, Who's the best Jew you know? Paul. Hands down. Look at all the stuff this guy can do. This is his list, he has this in his back pocket. And then watch what he does next because this is what's so extraordinary. The third point, counting all things as loss for knowing Jesus. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had from all those check boxes that he could mark off, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, verse eight, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the butt of verse seven so significant. See Paul has built by intention, by degree this lifestyle of honor, respect and admiration. He has reasons to boast, he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, and yet he lays it all down for the sake of. Of Christ In fact, he will go so far as to say that everything that he has accomplished in his life up to this point, everything admirable, everything praiseworthy, everything you put in on your LinkedIn profile or on your header on Facebook, the things that you want people to know you for, he says, it's a loss." OK, now why can Paul assess a, a whole lifetime of accomplishments this way? Why can he put this entire very impressive resume together and then put it in the loss column? Because it's in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ. For him, the worth of knowing Christ means that nothing else matters. Watch how Paul expands on this idea coming up in verse 8. He says, For the sake of Christ, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and, and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, watch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, not on work. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So go back, Paul has suffered the loss of all things, and he's counted them as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. Rubbish. This is an interesting word. Uh, scholars are a little um, uncertain as to what this means. You'll see it. Some people say, um, I think the NIV translates this as dung. Um, it might be the modern-day equivalent of poop or crap. Okay, Paul, is, is, he's on the verge of vulgarity, to describe his former accomplishments in his life. Now, why does he go to such an extreme? Why does he risk using a bad word in order to describe? I think he's wanting to make a very significant point that his lifetime of accomplishments meant that little when in comparison to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And I think there's maybe a more specific reason that Paul's using this striking word picture. I'm going to take you down a poop rabbit trail just for a second, so hold on. Dung or poop is, is simply what's left over after the food that you've eaten has given all of its value back to the body. That which no longer has value is then excreted and then left behind. Very familiar with this process. I have two children whose arms are not long enough to wipe themselves yet. So I'll get called into the bathroom like six times a day because I've got twins. Daddy, can you wipe me? <laughs> okay. And I come in there. And, of course, this is, uh, it's very important right that you don't put the toilet paper on top of the treasure that he's just deposited there because he wants to call his brothers, right? So he'll call his brothers from the bathroom. Come here. Come look at what I did. <laughs> And they all stand around the toilet and they look at it like, yeah, and then they high-five each other. This is so great. And then they all have this little ceremony and they flush the toilet. Bye-bye, poop. And then we, we go on with her merry way. Like, this is, this is what you have to look forward to if you're not a parent yet. <laughs> poop is just what's left over when it's been all used up. At the stage of life that Paul is in, he's saying, I am willing to literally flush all of these accomplishments down the drain because what I'm getting in return is so much more valuable, okay? Now, here's the thing that I want to press here, okay? What Paul has done up to this point in his life is really honorable. It is really incredible. It is really unique. And when he says, I've counted it all as rubbish or loss for the sake of knowing Christ, it's not as though he considers those things to be in themselves worthless, right? It's not as though Paul was walking wrong with all this like his accomplishments were like one big bag of trash that he just walked around through life with and then somebody shows up and is like, "Hey, I see you've got some trash there. Would you like some gold?" Well, of course, everybody takes that trade, right? I'll trade my trash for your gold any day. No, Paul had gold. His life was worth something. His accomplishments were honorable, and yet in that moment when he found the surpassing treasure of Christ, He said, everything that I've gotten here so far is actually worth nothing in comparison to the worth of knowing Jesus. Jesus will tell a similar story in the parables or in the the gospels. He tells this parable about a man who's out one day in a field. It's not his field, but for whatever reason, he's digging in it and he comes across a pearl. And this pearl is of such great price. Do you know what the man does? He goes back and he sells everything that he has in order to raise the capital, to buy the field, to get the pearl. So who wins in the bargain? The man does. Why? Because even though all of his treasure up to that point was worth something, he was willing to obviously trade it all in. Why? For the sake of the future and greater treasure. And this is the point that I want to try to make this morning, is that when we live a gospel-centered way, Jesus replaces himself at the center of our story because he is the greater treasure. This was the point that Paul was pressing so hard. He says, I know what it means to have a lot, and yet all of that I am willing to lay by the side for the purpose of following Christ. Paul replaces himself at the center of his story, places Jesus there instead. Paul, he says, I want to do whatever it takes to participate with Christ, even so much as sharing in his sufferings, being identified with him in death so that I might identify with Jesus in his resurrection. Paul wants nothing more than to be found in Christ, and having been found in Christ, says this is the greatest treasure worth giving up everything else for. Because when you participate in God's story, not your own, all of a sudden, the work that you do matters. I don't know how many of you wake up fearful that your life is a series of getting up, to go to work, to pay the bills, to take care of your kids and wife, and then one day you die. And you'll look back and you'll wonder, what was it all for? (laughs) What's my legacy? will anything that i do last i don't know these are questions i think about the beautiful hope of christianity the reason why i want to encourage you to live for your own story is because of the power of the resurrection first corinthians 15 which is a beautiful text that we can't get into this morning paul in that text goes through this lengthy list of why the resurrection is so important at the very end of that text in chapter 15 He will say that because of the resurrection, everything that you have done in labor for the Lord will not be in vain. It won't be in vain. God will, in a way that I can't understand or fully articulate, take all of the work that you have done, the daily getting up and taking care of the things that need to be taken care of, being excellent in the small things, loving people, serving people, being self-sacrificial, embracing humility, not arrogance, embracing self-sacrificial love, not anger and resentment, forgiveness. All of those things get wrapped up. All of the work of our lives get wrapped up into the story of God and God promises us that what we do in Christ Christ will not be in vain, that all of eternity will echo with the works and the words of what we have done here and now in this life. And that gives me great hope that our legacy in Christ can be on such a firm foundation that the work done in his name, on his behalf, does not die that Christ redeems it, Christ restores it, Christ resurrects it. It's not done in vain. And that's not something you get when you try to write your own story, build your own empire, advance your own name. You will die. And history is unkind to people who die. We just forget about them. I don't want to be forgotten. In Christ, the Bible promises, you are not forgotten, your work is not in vain. Paul put Jesus at the center of the story. We can do the same, okay, yeah, we can do the same, but sure, what Paul did was a lot i 'm not i I look at this and I struggle. so let me spend the last couple of minutes here shifting the narrative for you um, there 's two groups of people I want to speak to uh, the first is. You're the good Christian who hears this, and you've read Philippians 3 before, and you know verse 7 about counting all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ, and that really encourages you and inspires you, and you want to do that, but then you look across the landscape of your life, and you realize you suck at it. This is me. I don't, I'm not good at this. I look at my own life, and I realize that I'm just, I'm maybe, I'm aware of my own faults, and you probably are of well. If you're not aware of your own faults, your spouse is, just ask him or her. They'll be happy to tell you. We have our own shortcomings and our own downfalls that keep us from living this kind of lifestyle that says Jesus is truly at the center of what I'm doing and everything is revolving around him. I want, in my honest moments, people to know who I am and that I'm good at what I do and that they'll encourage me in those endeavors and I want to build a name for myself and I want to be successful so that my kids can have more opportunities than I did growing up. And I know those are not necessarily bad things. I don't want to conflate giving it all up for the sake of Christ with like a vow of abject poverty. Or like, no, I can't be good or I can't be successful. That's not the case. Paul was very successful and very good. And God used that success and that talent to amplify the work that he did throughout that. So please, get your education. Be excellent in your work. Get the promotion. Get more money because that gives you more resources that God can then use to bless other people. This is all, generally speaking, a positive thing. So here's the thing I want to encourage you good Christian with who struggles with this sense of weightiness that I'm not quite there yet when it comes to giving my everything to God. You have this whole treasure of things that you're not quite ready to let go of yet, be it your reputation or your education or your property or your assets or your retirement account or your kids. We, we want to hold on to those things. We're not quite comfortable yet with giving them all over to Jesus. Hear me out. Do not... Let guilt motivate you. Christianity is a guilt-free zone. Now there is conviction and that might be the voice of the Holy Spirit you're hearing right now to say there's an area of your life that you are white-knuckling and grasping onto so hard that I cannot get in there, I cannot move in your life. Pay attention to that. Repent of that. Ask Jesus to help you with it. But here's the thing. You do not become a better Christian by trying really hard to give everything to God. That that, that that motion of giving everything to God is not a natural human thing for you to do. You can't do it on your own. Come back to the gospel. Were you saved by grace? Yes. Will you grow in grace? Yes. Does God care about your spiritual development more than you do? Yes. Is He faithful to bring about all good things in your life until the day that He returns? Yes. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus that he will be there to help you in this pursuit of just getting up every day and say, God, today, these 24 hours ahead of me, I give to you. Everybody that comes into my life, help me to greet them as you would. Help me to speak. Help me to conduct my business. Help me to eat. Help me to exercise. Help me to sleep. Help me to recreate in ways that honor and reflect you. All of it belongs to you, God. All of it is done underneath your lordship. And no guilt. Seriously. You screw up, guess what? God's forgiveness is there. Do your business with him. Get on your knees. Repent. Move forward. His grace is sufficient. All right. There's a second group of people who might be here, and you're looking at this idea of absolute surrender, total abnegation of the self to the purposes of Christ, and you're like, not only is that not possible, it's dangerous and stupid. Uh, You might be a skeptic. Um let me tell you why you might think that way. In the world in which the Bible was written, say two or 3,000 years ago, um, the idea of the individual didn't really matter much. It was the tribe. It was the clan. Everything was done for the sake of the group. Your feelings about any particular thing were not important and were not considered at all. You fast forward. Christianity comes onto the scene and says, actually, you know what? Each individual is made in the image of God, and they have inherent Within them, value, worth, honor, dignity. Their emotions matter. Their feelings matter. Their desires matter. All of those things are good and can be focused towards God in good ways. So all of a sudden now we have, over the course of time, the rise of the individual. And then here in the world that we live now is post-modernity. And so instead of the ancient world where everything was about the tribe and the modern world where everything was about the individual, postmodernity has taken the individual and amplified it almost to an extreme, right? Think about all of our hero stories nowadays. They're all about the individual overcoming opposition from society or family or tradition to do their own thing and experience their own self-actualized worth, right? Um... I'll give you two examples. Uh, Moana, if you guys, okay, Uh, my two examples are Moana and Frozen, in case you want to know what kind of movies I watch. (laughs) Okay, Moana, kids movie, Disney, about this little Polynesian princess, totally cute, great movie, killer soundtrack. She disobeys her dad to go out into the ocean to find herself, and we celebrate. Frozen, you listen to the words and let it go. I know, parents, you've spent the last three years trying to get it out of your head, but bear with me, right? Right? Frozen, let it go, let it go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. This was a young woman who was dealing with the strictures of a very confining family, and now that song is her anthem of self liberation in order to herself. The fascinating thing, if you follow the arc of the movie Frozen, let it go rather than being the apex or the anthem, is actually the thing that gets the whole story in trouble. It's a fascinating film, a lot to think about Frozen, but that's not what we're here to do. <laughs> the point is, is that in a hyper-individualistic society, the only thing that matters is your individual fulfillment, right? So what becomes of morality? Well, morality, the only thing that's immoral is preventing another person from fulfilling their own self-actualized potential, right? Which is why, so the, basically the only evil nowadays in the world is discrimination, and so it creates this kind of moral relativism that's, that doesn't hold anything sacred. A uh, little example. Just last night, I was driving Uber and I pick up um, a whole bunch of people in front of a bar. Open my van door, a guy gets in. Hey, how are we doing? Whole group of people gets in. So many people, in fact, that I've got this special eighth seat that sits in the middle of the van and I've got to go get it. And while I'm putting this seat in, the eighth person looks at the seat and then looks at the whole crowded van and says, You know what? I'm out. She bails. Oh, come on, come with us. No, 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 I'm out. So she gets her own ride home. So now I've got seven people in the car because the eighth person isn't in the car. Of course, everybody starts talking about her. And these are all like the millennials that you've heard about, okay, in Portland. Um, And so we're all chatting and everybody's at the end of a night and everybody's delightfully buzzed. Let's just put it that way. And they are asking the question whether or not that gal, let's call her Megan, I don't know, whether or not Megan was gonna hook up with so-and-so. Oh, I don't think so. I, mean, I don't know if they slept together yet. I mean, they've had plenty of opportunities. They've been living together for two years, somebody from the back seat says. Somebody's like, yeah, I know, that's a great deal, right? Living together before you start dating is a really smart move. And I was like, oh, okay. And then somebody went on. These conversations that are a little bit fluid, and they were like, well, I mean, what's the big deal, really? Because even if they, like, get together or get married, it's not like divorce is a big deal. I mean, like, I'm pro-divorce. Somebody from the back seat said. And then all of a sudden we started hopping on this like, yeah, I mean, like literally, what's the big deal if you're not happy, you just get a divorce? And then somebody said, you know what, I was married to a guy who clipped his toenails on the bed. And then somebody from the back seat was like, divorce him. (laughs) And then she was like, I did. (laughs) I'm not sure for that. But the whole tenor, and now keep in mind, this is the babble of drunk people heading home after a night. But it was so revealing to me as I'm sitting there thinking, boy, I have gone through so many couples in premarital counseling reminding them that no matter what you do in your fights, threaten death before you threaten divorce. Um, it's just not, like that's a pact that my wife and I have. No matter how upset we get at each other, we, we do not throw the D word around as a chip that you play when you, when you fight. And so I'm sitting here, I'm like, the most, one of the most sacred things in my life is the sanctity of marriage. And here's this car full of millennials, and they're like, divorce is awesome. It gets you out of a relationship you didn't want to be in because they clipped their toenails on the bed. So here's, coming back to this point here, You may find this idea of living entirely for someone else ridiculous and absurd, but then you have to also critically examine the alternative to that, which is living entirely for yourself. If the motivating factor for your life is to accomplish your goals, here's the tension that you'll get in. You will say, like the meme on the internet, I really want six pack abs. And I want tacos. (laughs) Which of those two desires are you going to follow? You can't have both. At least, I'm pretty sure you can't have both. So when you look at your own desires, you realize that they're too flimsy, too transient, too um, unsteady to really build a life on. And worse yet, let's assume you actually accomplish all of your goals. One of the worst days in a lot of people's lives is the day after they've gotten the thing that they've really hoped for because they wake up and they realize that hole that's still inside of me, the thing that still gnaws on me from the inside out, it's still there. And the promotion and the lottery win or the whatever, the, 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 the spouse, the thing that I was looking for to make me whole simply can't satisfy. And then what do you do? Seriously, what do you do? Do you rebuild your life on the next thing What happens then? We human beings were far too small a creature to be a realistic and and coherent framework for our own sense of identity. Our modern world, our postmodern world, lives in this space that says you can do whatever you want. You can essentially name yourself and bless yourself. And that's simply not true. True. We all look for the approval of other people. If I say, I am the best executive pastor in the world. No, James, you're delusional and narcissistic. (laughs) You can't name yourself. You need somebody from the outside to do that. You need somebody who's higher than you and greater than you. But if you are the apex of your world, there is nothing above that. There's nothing above you to give you that sense of what your identity is. And this is why I want to come back to the idea of giving it all to Christ. The more parts of our lives that we try to name, that we try to bless, that we try to make our own apart from anything outside of us is the more parts of our life that will only lead to delusion, to narcissism, and to frustration. But when we give things to Christ, this is what Paul was fighting for. He freed himself by the power of the gospel from a lifestyle built on achievement. Achievement. Do you know how exhausting it is to be a successful person in today's world? Think of all the boxes you had to tick. You've got to be financially successful. You've got to be physically successful. You've got to be sexually successful. You've got to have a hot spouse. You've got to have a th- at least a three-car garage, two-bath, a third-acre. You've got to have upwardly mobile prospects. You've got to have a fully-funded 401K. You've got to have and, 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 and. And it can't be done. A thousand years ago, all you had to do was just be a good son or daughter. It might have been confining, but at least it was attainable, <laughs> all right? Now we set standards for ourselves that it, we're suffocating underneath the weight of our own self-made prisons because we're trying to define ourselves by ourselves. And here's the beauty of giving it all to Jesus. When you give it all to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you reject being really good at what you do, being the best version of yourself that you can be, being the most educated, the most well-read, the nicest, whatever else. Yes, all of those things are awesome, but all of those things don't mean anything except for the voice of the Father who says, son, daughter, you are loved, you are accepted, and you are adopted, not because of all of that stuff, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Christianity is the only religion that gives hope to the invalid, to the paraplegic, to the mentally disabled. Because those people, they can't. They missed the economy of our world that says it's a meritocracy. It's only what you can produce to society that defines your worth. And Christianity comes along and says your worth is defined by someone far outside of you who sees you and loves you already all loves you already and accepts you already and adopts you already. And not only that, but brings you a part of a story that has been traveling for millennia and may for millennia more about the restoration of the entire world underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest, grandest, biggest possible story there is. And God invites each one of us in our weaknesses and failings and faults into that story to redeem us as we pursue his story, not ours. So friends, if you're here today and you're skeptical of the idea of giving it all away, I will ask you two questions. One, how's it going for you so far? And two, would you look to Jesus as the one who names you, as the one who blesses you, as the one outside of you who gives you your identity that is received? You receive this as a gift. You do not achieve it. Your salvation, your standing with God is received, not achieved. And from that place of firm knowing that God is on your side, that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God has invited you into a story that's much greater than you, can you possibly make a difference in this world? Otherwise, you're building a castle made out of sand. And time will come along and wipe it all out to sea. And will fade away into oblivion and there will be no legacy. But in Christ, our legacy is secure. What we do for Jesus is not in vain. So friends, my encouragement to you is let's take an honest look at our lives this week. Say, Holy Spirit, please reveal to me areas of my life that need a lot of help and, and, and counting them all as a loss in comparison to knowing Jesus. Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.